Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Choose Inclusion and our Black Voices Matter segment, special segment. And I'm Yubi. I'm here with Nina and Mike, my great co-hosts, as always. How are you guys this morning? Doing well, Ubaldo. Thanks for uh, thanks for asking, Nina. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm I'm a little um, braced right now because I think the podcast we're about to start off is going to be probably one of the most Emotion. I'm already crying, actually. I'm one of the most emotional ones um, that we'll, we'll ever do. And I feel so humbled. And uh, I, I don't even have the words for it. Just like humbled, honored, um, appreciative. I don't know uh, that we have Abe Arrington here today. Um, and I'll let Hubie just jump into the introduction. Yeah, no, we uh, we were lucky to connect with Abe through a great organization here in Colorado called Defy. And they work with incarcerated uh, people who to help them to to teach them and, and help them build their own business plan. And so Abe was, I believe, one of their first. Abe Arrington uh, was one of their first students. But Abe was wrongfully convicted and imprisoned here in Colorado about thirty years ago. Um, he was actually recently granted immediate clemency by Governor Polis, and so we're going to talk about that. Um, he's also the founder of Emotech Geoengineering. He's a care manager at Second Chance here in Colorado. Um, and yeah, Abe, it's it's really a, just an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for agreeing to do it. And this is a part one because there's just there's so much we want to talk about. So part two is tomorrow and where we'll dive into your entrepreneurial story. But uh, first of all, how are you doing, Abe? Oh, I'm doing great. And I want to say first and foremost, too, it's an honor for you guys to give me a chance to, you know, speak and to, um, to basically give me a voice about, uh, you know, some of the different subjects that we'll be talking about and diving into. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, let's, let's dive in. I mean, let's talk about because today what we wanted to talk about were the, the systemic issues, right, that have plagued and continue to plague the black community since America was born, basically. So let's, can you tell us your story? Tell us, um, you know, what happened 30 years ago? Uh, well, 30 years ago, I was a, 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 you know, a young man. I was a, a airman in the United States Air Force. Uh, I was uh, just completing my time in service. Um, I was a musician. I actually was doing some music at the time, um, performing and uh, things like that. Uh, I decided to, to go ahead and, uh, you know, leave the United States Air Force. I was going to go ahead and do that and get out and, you know, continue my life as a civilian. I was married. I was a husband. I was a father. Um, uh, I'm originally from Ohio, but my, my father lived in uh, Colorado Springs at the time uh, where I actually had to, uh, uh, you know, lived some years before I you know, went to high school in Colorado Springs. Um, so I decided to come back to Colorado uh, to basically just, just stay here for a few months while I went ahead and uh, got my stuff shipped up from uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, where I had been stationed at. And I was planning to, um, uh, move on. Uh, I had job offers, you know, pretty much all over the place. If I could pass the uh, airframe power plant test to become a certified aircraft mechanic, I've been studying pretty much uh, throughout the spring and, and all summer uh, to do that. Now it was like around the, the really almost like winter, fall, or whatever. It was like uh, October, late October, I believe it was. Uh, so I decided I was going to come back and um, uh, go to Tennessee. Uh, come to Colorado, I had made plans because I had to go to the testing center, which is in Tennessee. And uh, I went down there, uh, got a bus ticket down there and went down there. Uh, I think I was down there, I think uh, maybe a week and a half or something like that, maybe a week um, at the testing center. I took this test 
uh, to become a certified aircraft mechanic. Um, very much confident that uh, that I passed all parts of it. Uh, at the time, it was three parts I took: uh, airframe, power plant, and the um, and the um, and electrical. Uh, so, um, and then I did. I ended up passing all three parts. I think like a ninety some ninety three percent average or something like that. Um, and uh, so I returned back to Colorado Springs. And uh, three days later, I was invited to a party over uh, over a family friend's house, and. Uh, which is really kind of funny. And, I, and over the years, I just used to commiserate about this because I didn't even want to go to this party because I was so tired from all the studying I've been doing for the previous month. I just wanted to relax uh, for a few days. But I went to this party and uh, during the course of the night, uh, some guys had left to go out, to, um, presumably to go get some drugs or something like that, which I did not do. I was actually tested upon my arrest. My system was completely clean of any drugs and, uh, and, and very, very, very little alcohol, you know, was you know, way below the, the so-called uh, limit. Uh, or whatever, and um, and uh, so uh, uh, during that incident or during whatever they went and done, uh, a, a guy was killed. Uh, who reportedly, and this was told to me actually by police officers and my lawyers alike, uh, when I first was arrested, that the guy was a drug dealer, uh, and it was actually validated by one of the guards uh, when I was by myself uh, incarcerated in the county jail, who actually pulled the guy up on the computer and uh, showed that he had an extensive criminal record. Uh, the only reason I bother to mention this is because um, uh, my trial became somewhat different. Uh, you know, that was never actually mentioned. And none of this stuff was pretty much, you know, uh, mentioned during the course of my trial. They just, you know, basically fabricated uh, this fictional story uh, that involved me, that put me into this, um, into this, uh, uh, this incident. And uh, I was actually convicted and sentenced to uh, life plus, uh, initially life plus 20 years, 40 year life plus 20 years. Uh, two consecutive uh, 20 year sentences uh, along with that. And uh, I spent uh, the next 30 years uh, fighting to prove my innocence. And th so you had mentioned something that had caught my ear when we were, um, you know, first getting to know you. I mean, this, so this happened in Colorado Springs and I, um, I think everybody, you know, most people remember the movie Black Klansman that came out, I think, a couple years ago, 2018, maybe. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, you were saying that the, the events that took place or that were represented in that movie really only happened about 10 years before this happened to you. Yes, I think it was just it's over a decade. I, you know, and I, I found that um, I found that. Um, uh, somewhat uh, morbid, amusing. <laughs> uh, right. Years later, when I saw that, I was like, "Wow!" You know, I guess uh, you know, um, you know, a decade is really, you know, it's not that long, you know, in the terms when it, when it, when you talk about you know um, uh, problems and that exist within a certain culture, you know, and you know, in the course of police department, in this case, uh, a decade is not that long, and 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 I I guess you could say I kind of understood at that point why. Um, why certain things were said to me, you know, when, when I first got arrested, um, like, like when I was told, you know, quite frankly, by an independent investigator who managed to get in to see me, I still don't even know how that actually took place without my lawyer's approval or knowing about it. But this investigator came in and he so-called read me the riot act. And, um, and he had told me, told me just straightforward. I give, I give him credit for being very frank and being honest with me. He told me, Mr. Arrington, he said, the simple fact is that you're a black man accused of killing a white man in El Paso County. He said, uh, somebody has to pay for it. And right now it looks like it's going to be you. And he told me quite directly also, he said, it didn't matter if I was innocent. 
he told me that. And, and again, I didn't, I didn't believe that, you know, um, at the time, um, you know, you could say I was naive or whatever, you know, but, uh, I intended to believe that, um, you know, like, like myself, that most people, you know, would, would, would just do the right thing. You know what I mean? Um, uh, you know, regardless of a person's color, you know, or religion or whatever the heck it was, you know, if you know, it's not right. then then, then, then and, and I mean, any question always like, why, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, you know, why would you want to take a man who you know is innocent, you know, and put him in prison, you know, and things like that? I, you know, it just it just didn't make any sense. I mean, you know, there was talks, you know, uh, for years about a rush to judgment and things like that, but but throughout throughout my um, the process, throughout the process of you know leading up to my trial and even through my appeals and, and for years to come, there were always things that came up that 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 just kept proving, you know, well this is not true, this man. You know, was not there. You know, he had nothing to do with this, and uh, and and they kept either turning a blind eye to it. In some cases, just you know, sweeping it under the rug. You know, um, like um, there were there were you know two specific instances that came to light about um, when uh when when it became clear that uh uh one of my co-defendants, you know, who had testified against me, uh, it became clear, you know, uh, as according to the record, at least twice. Uh, uh, that they knew he was lying, that he had lied on the stand. And uh, you had two different judges at two different times who had advised him on how to cover up his perjury. But one judge went as far as to say that as far as he was concerned, he had gotten away with it and not to say anything about it, not to tell anybody. And um, which, which, you know, like I said, I still find to this day, I find that extremely hard to believe that you would do that. And, you know, and this is the evidence against me, by the way, is, is this man's testimony. You know what I mean? And, 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 and and a couple and a pair of other co-defendants who kept changing their testimony, who also you know, um, had admitted to being, you know, liars or chronic liars and had mental problems and everything else. And 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 still, you know, people decided that they wanted to um, to cover that up and, and and take that and use that and uh, you know and send me to prison with, you know, based upon that right there, you know. Um, so, so yeah. Hey, by um. I'm I'm really appreciative of you sharing your your story with us. Um, one of the things that you shared uh, on the pre-call was the the clemency and the the rarity around that because I um, I think it's super important for our audience to hear like just how much of an anomaly this was, um, and I don't know if it's necessarily um, uh, you know, if you, if you feel, um, like how you, like, I'd love to, you know, again, like 30 years incarcerated, um, always saying you're innocent. And was this a, uh, validation of, you know, your innocence by, you know, the governor, I'd love, I'd love for you to share that part of the story. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, definitely in, um, uh, of course, in, 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 in a lot of ways, um, I, I feel that it was, and, uh, and, and, and I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you again, you know, basically how it happened and then I'll, I'll tell you why I feel that way. Um, uh, like I said, uh, like I was saying before, I, I actually like, like a lot of people, you know, prison, you got this culture, you know, that it's, it's, it's kind of hard to explain and, you know, and, uh, you know, in sound bites or whatever, but, but a lot of people had to have filed for clemency, you know, and, um, uh, I mean a lot, you know, and especially on the Hickelooper, because at the time Hickelooper was considered to be uh, the most, um, uh, probably most liberal governor that Colorado had, you know, had ever, you know, 
we have not, at least in recent history. So a lot of people figured, well, hey, you know, maybe he'd be willing to give people, you know, a second chance and so forth and so forth. You know, uh, me, it was it was it was a little bit different because, you know, my final inclemency was was going to be based upon my innocence and and uh, uh, people really never filed for clemency, you know, under under you know, based upon their innocence. Uh, almost, I'm talking about in almost any state across the union. I mean, you can actually get um, legal. Uh, legal arguments and, and, and laws and stuff or whatever that are written about that. And uh, and the reason why is because uh, most often than not, most most governors or at least their administration you know, and their advisors will tell, they'll, they'll, they'll tell the person, hey, well, if you're going to file for clemency, then, uh, you know, you have to basically plead, you know, this, basically almost like taking a plea bargain, you have to, you know, admit guilt. And, uh, and uh, you know, you know I, I, I really didn't want to do that, wasn't, you know, I just wasn't up to the task as far as I'm concerned. I'm like, man, you know, I'm innocent. I don't, I don't, and I, and I'm not saying this, you know, as far as people who do do it. I, I mean, I can't fault them because I understand the psychology behind it, you know, um, but, um, but no, I wasn't going to do it. My lawyers talked about it. So it was filed, and my, my clemency was filed under actual innocence. And most of the time when you do that, it's, it's not even entertaining. They won't even look at it. And uh, so with that said, uh, under Hickenlooper, my, my, my application, was actually, you know, passed over. It was actually, you know, they said, we're not going to even rule on this. Uh, and, they, and not just mine, they did a whole lot of people like that. They said, we're going to go ahead and pass it off to the next administration and let them decide. What they're going to do. And so, um, so it was carried over to Polis administration. And, uh, and, uh, and there were quite a, there were, there were some guys who were given, given clemency under Hickenlooper, you know, um, and, um, and so by the time my application came around, and, Polis to make his decision. Uh, uh, actually, a couple of years later, a lot of the guys who had gotten clemency under Hickenlooper were still incarcerated. <clears throat> they um, they were basically either put up for parole, or or their time, their sentence was cut, where they could make parole in a, in, a, in a few years, you know, maybe five years down the road or things like that. Uh, and so a lot of them were still locked up. And uh, so, lo and behold, you know, my application goes to Polis. And this is something else I should point out. Most governors only grant clemency, especially under serious cases like you know homicides and murders and things like that, which was is what kind of case I had. They usually only grant grant clemency after their fourth year in in office, you know, or when they're presumably going to leave office and things like that. Or maybe they do two terms, maybe you know their eighth year in office. And um, so um, so uh, lo and behold, mine goes up before Governor Polis, and um, and. Uh, like uh, it was December twentieth last year. It hasn't even been a year yet. December twentieth. Uh, like I said, day I, you know, I, I, I pray I'll never forget. Um, I was at work and uh, uh, Major she came. Uh, it's Major Trujillo. Uh, she came. Uh, she came to where I was at and she said, "Hey, uh, are you Mr. Aronson?" I said, "Yes, ma'am." She said, uh, "Well, you got to go to the warden's office. So you got to make a phone call." And uh, I was actually kind of afraid because um, usually when something like that happens, you have to call home and something has happened at home. And um, and so um, but anyway, we went, we walked in and, and and there's the warden sitting there, and uh, and he asked me had I applied for clemency, and I told him yes, sir. He said we had to call the governor's office; they want to talk to you. And everybody in that room pretty much was believing that um, that uh, it was going to be, you know, maybe something about um, you know, maybe them interviewing me and asking me some questions, you know, to um, further the progression of of the application for clemency. And so um, we called the um. The governor's lawyer and she got on the phone and she said, Mr. Erickson, I wanted to inform you that the governor has agreed to grant you 
uh, clemency. You'll be eligible for parole as of Monday. This is on a Friday. And immediately in my mind, I'm thinking like all these other guys over the past couple of years, previous years, who uh, two years before, whatever, who have gotten clemency on a hip loop. And I'm thinking, okay, well, how long will I probably be going up for parole? And, um, and immediately, you know, within a second after that, I had this flash in my mind and she immediately shut that down by telling me, uh, Mr. Harrington, I want to make it clear that you have been granted a rare immediate clemency. So even if they refuse, the parole board refuses you, you to grant you parole as of any time after Monday, uh, they will not be able to hold you longer uh, past March 1st. And so um, that was a big shocker for everybody in the room. Like, so I became, of course, you know, that's when I lost. I became very emotional. I can even see uh, the emotion on the warden's face and the major's face. And they were like, I know you have to be shocked. They said, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. That's what, what I was told. They said, I'm shocked. They said, because this never happens. They said this never happens. We thought they were going to ask you some questions. So, so that's how you know that that was uh, pretty much the um, uh, and it was just also it was it was. I mean, it's kind of hard to explain to you how how crazy this had evolved from because um, things had started to happen two years prior to that, including one of them was my you know uh, signing up for the five, you know, my my patent being granted and. And this was like, you know, things started, you know, started going well, but I, I didn't, even with the application in, I knew it was an extreme long shot, you know, for me to, to possibly be granted clemency. And so that's why after fighting for so many years, and I had fought my case at one point all the way up to the 10th Circuit uh, Federal Court of Appeals on my own. And I believe it was in 06, uh, I believe it was in 06 that, uh, I actually was granted my, my, my application for appeal to the 10th Circuit Federal Court of Appeals was granted on the grounds of actual innocence. Um, and, uh, and they took it back nine months later saying that I had uh, um, failed to file something properly or whatever, which, which, which was incorrect. But, um, but, um, but I knew there was a lot going on, you know, or at least I believe there was a lot going on behind the scenes because again, I had judges who had suburban perjury on my case. I had, or the forensics evidence had reportedly, you know, that came back negative in my favor, had reportedly been lost and, and a whole lot of other stuff that had happened that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, I guess you might say, can can, can easily be be proven to be, you know, judicial mis misconduct by some of the highest officers in the court. Um, and so, at, you know, I, I had came to feel that, um, you know, I like I I came to feel that, that, that you know, and I was always like, I, I got to prove my innocence, got to prove my innocence. And, and at one point, I think right at a little bit after that, and this is after fighting for, you know, I think what, at that point, almost 16, 17 years, um, and I was like, you know, um, you know, who am I trying to prove it to? Because because I after after all the evidence that I've been presenting, it became very clear to me that these people knew that I was actually innocent. And, and when they had made that ruling, that was really a validation of that. At that point, uh, they just didn't want to, uh, they just didn't want to grant me that because of whatever, uh, I guess you might say repercussions or, or whatever might happen with regards to not just the judges themselves, but, you know, that the court, you know, in El Paso County and everything else, what that actually would mean, you know, down there is, you know, as far as the possibility of reopening other people's cases and all this other kind of stuff like that. This is what I came to believe in and, and had reason to believe, you know, uh, from what I've studied, you know, with, with the law and everything like that, how that works. So by the time um, Hickenlooper, you know, I mean, you know, had, had, you know, decided he wasn't going to rule on my thing and Polis came along and, and, and decided that he was going to uh, grant me, uh, you know, clemency, you know, and I'll give him, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, as we say, props and, and, 
and very, very thankful, very, very grateful for him having the courage to do something that uh, that uh, so many people who were in a position that were supposed to keep this from happening, you know, just 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 cowardly refused to do. And he showed a lot of courage in doing that. So I, I definitely appreciate that. And it shows uh, to me, it actually shows um, uh, a lot of character on his part that, that definitely um uh, cannot be denied. And this is not just, just, I'm not just saying this because he granted me the clemency because I knew uh, at that point, I knew what it takes. I, you know, I knew what, what it must take for him to do that and do it. You got to understand he did it his first year in office. And, and that's makes it even rare still because most clemencies aren't even granted until the fourth year. And, uh, and, and the ones like for, for serious cases such as mine usually don't happen until if the person does a second term, maybe eight years out or definitely, you know, the fourth year at, at, at least. And, and usually it's granted where in such a way where they say, oh, we'll let you get parole like they did a whole lot of the other guys. But in my case, the fact that they entertained it, that it was filed under actual innocence, that uh, they granted it and that they granted it immediately, they granted it in the first term. It's like something that uh, uh, you probably can really seriously probably can go back and check. And I haven't, but you probably go back and check the history of the state. And I don't think it's ever happened. So that just goes to show you how rare it is. I um, thank you for sharing, sharing all that, Eve. I, I really do appreciate that. And then, so you, you've not even been out of, out of prison for, for a year. And yet you are immediately, um, again, I'd love our listeners to know like the, the, the character that you are demonstrating by your, your, your giving back. I mean, I mean, we're going to talk more about all of your entrepreneurial, uh, endeavors next episode, but you're you're immediately given back to your community by working for the organization Second Chance. Can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that? Uh, yeah, sure, definitely. Uh, Second Chance Center is a reentry center uh, that was actually started by uh, by a, a group of um, returning citizens, formerly incarcerated persons. Um, uh, one of them, uh, Hassan Abdul Latif, the, the director. Uh, uh, I actually uh, met him, came to know him in prison. And almost um, shortly after I, I got to um, Lyman Correctional Facility, we opened up Lyman Correctional Facility. So that just goes to show you how long ago this was. We, I mean, I was the first person to live in my cell at that facility. <laughs> I got there 10 days after it opened. He got there, um, I think, probably about um, maybe about a year later or something like that. He got there and I met him, but I really didn't get to know him until... Uh, about two years later, when we when we ended up at Centennial Correctional Facility, uh, really great guy, uh, Sean Taylor, his um, uh, assistant director. Uh, I actually was at Lyman with him. Also, uh, got to know him uh, uh, at Lyman. Uh, so we we have we all have a ton of war stories about about each other and about <laughs> about about you know all of that that was going on then and uh, and how all of our situations evolved because all of us have such compelling stories. I mean, Hassan has his, his whole story. It, is a is, is is a very compelling one as far as how he grew up and, and you know he's from New York and and how he ended up out here and how he ended up incarcerated and and and, and show us you know Sean Taylor's because Sean Taylor actually I tell you something about Sean Taylor which is really 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 crazy I don't if you even know if he even knows this uh, he was actually one of the reasons why he decided to bother to even file for clemency and that's because he was actually granted clemency probably about a decade before I was and. Um, and that actually made me even think about that as a possibility because prior to him being Grand Clemson, I, I just never, honestly, I never even thought about it. And, um, but uh, he's really, really great guy. There's, there's um, uh, uh, 
Shake Adam, who also works there, will start the second jet center as well. Um, he did he did 30 years in the feds. You know, um, he has a very compelling story. Uh, Dana Jenkins, um, um, uh, interesting part about her story is that uh, she was actually incarcerated in South Carolina for like, or North Carolina maybe, uh, one of the Carolinas for like six years. And uh, she was actually uh, leaving. She, was, she, she had done her time in North Carolina in the state system. And she was leaving on her way out the gate or before she pretty cleared the gate, the, the feds came and picked her up and took her to the feds. And she spent another 20 years in the federal system. Um, so, you know, there's Kelly Booker, there's um, uh, Khalil Halim, who also was incarcerated here in Colorado. He did six years. He did six years on an ankle monitor um, <laughs> uh, and just by parole. And so you have all these 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 people who, are, who work at the center. And uh, and when I got out, I was actually, you know, given an opportunity and it's a very good opportunity, a great opportunity to work there. It's a great place. I mean, I really love it. I love the people who I work around. Uh, we have like um, somewhat of a you know similar history and some of us shared history. Uh, and I started working there about a week after I got out. Uh, I mean, cause I definitely wanted to get to work with uh, helping people who have been, been incarcerated and stuff like that, restart their lives. That was somewhat therapeutic for me myself. Uh, but yeah, they asked me when I got out, when you want to go to work? I mean, I, did, I think it was the next day I showed up at the center. Uh, they told me to come by uh, and, and, and they had advocated for me also. I should say that a lot of them. And uh, they said, so when do you want to start work? I said, uh, tomorrow. <laughs> and they all laughed. They said, they said no, nah, we're not going to let you start tomorrow. They said, you just got out. I said, OK, um, I'll delay it to next Friday or next Thursday or whatever it was. And they said, OK. And so I started next week and I uh, have been working there ever since. And uh, and uh, like I said, and it's great. It's, it's even greater when you have guys who come in who you actually knew. And, uh, and I had I had a guy come in uh, a few months back and I sat down to do the intake with him and we're talking and because of COVID, we're all wearing masks now and stuff like that. So we're in a mask and he's got a hat on the boot. So he sits down and, and I asked him his name and he gives me his first name. And I and I, and I said, last name. And we and I looked at him and I started laughing because I knew this guy. And he, and he did he did like thirty five years. And a uh, really, really good guy. He's a, he's a he's an artist, a very accomplished artist. I mean, very, very good artist. And uh, so we, next thing you know, the interview or the intake turned into like a like an impromptu reunion, and we're just here for for a long time, just talking about people who we knew and things like that. So uh, moments like that, and when you can actually also help guys, they come in and they don't have anything, and they're like, you know, I don't have this, I don't have that, and you know, and and, and I can see or or, or hear in their voices that they're worried about what they're going to do, and to be given an opportunity to say, hey, look, this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to help you with your housing situation. We're going to help you get this and that, and you know, help them get the clothes, and you know, you know, show them about how to go about getting a job and everything like that to get identification and uh, things like that. And then, and then to 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 see how uh, how confident they are that they can make it. You know, when when they go out the door, when they call me back a few days later and say, "Hey, man, I got that job," and you know, I'm looking forward to doing this and that now, and and they might call me back a month later and we talk about how they're getting along with their family, their grandkids and stuff like that. So yeah, it makes it, it makes it, you know, you know, very much worth it. You know, to do that. Abe, I, um, I just have one more question to ask you before we wrap up. Um, you know, the justice system clearly failed you terribly over 30 years. Every point of the justice system failed you. And as you've, you know, talked to and are working with other people who've gone through that system as well, and it's clearly failed, failed them as well, what what would you want to see changed? What do you think it's going to take to change it, actually, 
to changes so these things don't happen to people anymore? I've, I've thought about that over the years. Um, uh, one, one of the main things I, I think is, is very important is, is really accountability. And, and there's always, um, uh, there, there's, a, there's a complete absence of that when it comes to accountability. When, uh, you know, if you have a, a surgeon or a doctor who, you know, who makes a mistake, I mean, they're, they're accountable. They can, just, you know, they lose their license or something like that or, or, or anything like that. But, but unfortunately, you know, uh, prosecutors and, and specifically, I mean, in my case, you had judges. I mean, just, I mean, literally, they just literally, you know, committed felonies when it comes to some of the things that they did. In my case, in order to convict me, um, they are never held accountable. And, and uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, I mean, there, there's, you know, there's still things that are being done, you know, possibly, you know, with, my, with regards to my situation and everything like that, but, uh, which I won't get into right now, but, but uh, they, they haven't been held accountable. And, and when you have, when you, when you don't have accountability, you look at this like this, uh, as a prosecutor, you can go ahead and you can do a lot of the things that were done in my case. And even when it comes clear to light that um, that uh, you're not going to be punished for, that's not really just a message to 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 that prosecutor. That's a message to all prosecutors. And then you have a culture that 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 begins to um, to uh, to thrive. You know, that kind of culture thrives because it's like, hey, I can do whatever I want to do. You know, and it doesn't matter, you know, if this person I sent up was innocent or whatever. And everybody knows that uh, it was clear to me that he was innocent. Or there was evidence of that. It was clear there were there were red flags that I should have paid attention to, but I decided not to do it. And everybody knows that, that I mean, you know, that uh, that I got away with it. And and, and other people, uh, prosecutors who are on the bench right now, uh, you know, are here in court right now know that, hey, well, if they did that, then I must, I, I surely could probably do something that's, it's not quite as bad as that, or maybe even just as bad as that. And still get away with it. So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, what I really would like to see more immediately, and uh, because right before, right before I, I was incarcerated, uh, there was a, a massive increase in sentencing in Colorado. I mean, they double, triple, quadruple a lot of sentences, things of that nature. And um, and what I had come to notice over the years is like, just to give you an example, you had um, a life sentence in Colorado used to be twenty years. Uh, when, when I got, when, right when, before I got locked up, probably like two or three years before they had made it 40 years, which, you know, was an extensive amount of time. And then, uh, a couple years after I got locked up, they changed it to natural, natural life. And, uh, there's no, there's no room for error when you have something like that, you know, I mean, no room for error. And so what I would really like to see is I, I would like to see massive, uh, sentence reform across the board, because a lot of the sentences that I've seen guys get. You know, and I'm talking about even even in the case of some people who, who were guilty, some of the sentences were just were just insane. I mean, 120 years for burglary, you know, things like that, you know, for, uh, you know, uh, 80 years, 90 years. I, I know a guy who was doing 80 years for marijuana, marijuana. He's doing 80 years for transporting, you know, large quantity of marijuana, which is now legal in this state. You know what I mean? And to the best of my knowledge, he's still incarcerated for that. That's insane. You know what I mean? And so uh, what I'm saying, though, I mean. So it's, it's bad enough if a person, you know, is, is guilty, whereas the sentences, you know, are so out of control. But if a person is innocent, you know, um, there's there's there, there there's just there's just no way. Like I said, my situation is extremely rare. Where, whereas I was going to grant the clemency. Uh, what about people who are still incarcerated? And there are some, believe me, there are other people who are wrongly convicted uh, who who might not get the clemency. But 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 the system is in such a way where it's impossible for them to even possibly even 
even walk walk it down and, and even just do do a do a sentence and get out is what I guess I'm trying to say. You know, if the sentence was still 20 years, you know, ironically, if the sentence was still 20 years, I would have been out <laughs> over a decade ago. You know what I mean? Uh, even even with a wrongful conviction, you know, but I would have been out and, and, and been able to have so much more you know, uh, time left on my life. But uh, because of the way the sentencing is now, there's there's no room for error, and uh, and, uh, and 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 unfortunately, um, it's like I said, it's most one of the most egregious things that you can actually do to a person. If you're going to have a system where you're going to have no no room for error, you better darn sure be sure you know what you're doing and have some serious uh, uh, accountability for times when you don't. You know, when you do uh, uh, make mistakes, or in my case, you know, purposely decide that you're going to ignore evidence and hide evidence and destroy evidence and tell people it's okay to purge themselves and things like that. Uh, so that's, those are two of the things that I would like to see. Yeah. Abe, thank you. Thank you for today. Um, th this is a really important conversation and I'm, you know, it's, I'm glad that America's having to reckon with this now and your story adds so much impact to why it's so important. So thank you. Um, Thank you for today. This morning um, was very impactful, inspirational, um, and I hope the audience takes away from this. Um, but also tomorrow, we're going to come back and really dive into your entrepreneurial journey and, oh. and talk about you know because I, I I love the stories you were telling us before about how you spent your thirty years, uh, the last thirty years, and and what you did to you know, to come out and, and continue to make an impact. So um, we'll look forward to that same, same time, same channel. And uh, yeah, thank you again, Abe, for today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Abe. Thank yeah, I thanks. appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. I really, I mean, it really means a lot to me. Thank you. You bet. Ubaldo, Nina, thank you both. We'll talk tomorrow. See everybody tomorrow. Take okay. Care. Tomorrow.